This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. Who's better? I want to answer that question right off the top of the show today. Who is better? I'm getting a lot of grief from Husky fans after I wrote over the weekend that I thought Oregon would beat Washington if they played 10 times. They'd beat them 9 out of 10. I mean... At home, a three-point win. Oregon did a lot wrong in the kicking game and the decision game. Who's better, Oregon or Washington? They play the game today. 503-417-7575. Who's better, Bo Nix or Michael Penix Jr.? Heisman debate beginning to pick up as Penix Jr. and Bo Nix are both sky high on the odds board now. There are six Heisman Trophy voting regions in the country. 145 voters in each. All the former winners get a vote, too, if they're alive. Fans get one vote, kind of a token. I have a vote, also a token. But here's the thing. I'm kind of thinking Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix, who play the same position, in the same conference, in the same Pacific Northwest region, I'm kind of thinking they might cannibalize each other just a little bit. And does it open the door for LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels or someone else? Six regions. Who would you give your vote to today if you had to pick it today? Oregon State, uh, are they better as well? Is it part of the problem as it pertains to Jonathan Smith's gunslinging attitude, taking points off the board, not kicking field goals, fake field goals, uh, going for two instead of one. Is part of the issue at Oregon State that Jonathan Smith doesn't know that he's got the better team? I don't know. Discuss. It's something I've been thinking about because when he inherited the program so many years ago at Oregon State, uh, he essentially was walking into a house where the previous owner had taken, like, everything, left it empty. Like, I'm talking like he went in, there were no shower heads. You know, the shower curtains were gone. There was no toilet paper. It was empty. This place was empty when Jonathan Smith took it over. And he had to, for a couple years, three, four years, really try to steal possessions, try to change games. Does he have better players now? Does he have better players than Colorado? Does he have better players than Arizona? Does he have better players than Washington State? Is part of the problem that Jonathan Smith is still dealing with the mentality of, hey, I've got to steal a possession. I've got to uh, steal a point here. 
I've got to uh, steal a you know score a touchdown on a fake field goal instead of just taking three points and going to halftime. You tell me if you think that's part of the issue or if there's an issue at all, because you could argue that at Oregon State Jonathan Smith is doing just fine. You know he's sitting here at uh, you know uh, going into his last three weeks of the regular season and sitting on a seven and two record has a chance this year to go ten and two. Could he be 9-2 and two heading to the Oregon game? It's conceivable, given that the Beavers are at Research Stadium in the next two games against Stanford. They're better than Stanford. And against Washington. They might not be better than Washington, but they're playing at home. And Oregon State's a tough out at Research Stadium. Got a lot to talk about on today's show. The phone number, 503-417-7575. Jonathan Smith has some comments in his news conference today that were hilarious and that I agree with. I'm somebody, if I'm at the blackjack table, that appreciates when I draw an 11 that I am doubling down. And and I know the book will say, you know, there's certain scenarios that you don't double down. No, 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 no. I can't pass it up. If I've got an 11 I got a chance to draw a 10, I am doubling down every single time. And so does Jonathan Smith. So maybe there's not a problem at all at Oregon State. I'll let you hear his comments and his logic uh, coming up, Stephen. How was your weekend, man? What uh, what jumped out at you as you watched sports and college football over the weekend? Yeah, no, man. Uh, good weekend. Good solid weekend. Was at the beach for a little while, so that was a lot of fun. But yeah, it was. Uh, it's one of those things where you know it sticks out where Jonathan Smith is going to be aggressive, and, and I love it, John. You talk about the blackjack mentality. I'm with you. You got to double down those elevens. I think Jonathan Smith is just going to do that for his whole career. It's just one of those things he's going to do. Is there any scenario where you don't double down? Let me. Like you're in the casino. Take me through it. Is there a scenario where you go, nah, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do that? Um, the only time I think about not doing it is when the dealer has an ace. Like, I have an 11, they have an ace. But besides that, no, it's, uh, it's automatic double down anytime I got an 11. But you know how they, the dealer has an ace? They'll say, do you want insurance? And then they'll check it. So you know there's not a face card under there. So you know that you have a chance to draw but the, the most common card in the deck but the to get odds, a 21. The, the odds of dealer busts with an ace card is, like, very minimal. <laughs> so I'm still betting on myself. Love I'm still it. doubling I, 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 down. I respect, I respect the aggressiveness. I usually yeah. do, too. It's just, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't. But for the most part, yeah, I do. And I think that's the way you got to do it when you're at a school at Oregon State. Like, Oregon State's never going to be, you know, the powerhouse, how a powerhouse program that these other schools are going to be. So I think he has to have that mentality of, we got to go out and win these games. We're not going to be given anything. We got to go and win. So I, I love the, that type of stuff. All right. Give me an idea, though. Um, who's better? Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix. I mean, statistically, Penix Jr.'s got more touchdown passes. He also has more interceptions. He's got uh, sitting on 26 touchdown passes and seven interceptions. His team's undefeated. They're number five in the rankings. Um, the Huskies are, 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 you know, going to be favored going uh, pretty much to every game this season uh, that they play in. And if they continue to win, they're going to get, you know, to the conference championship game. They got the inside track. Meanwhile, Bo Nix is sitting at about, you know, 500 fewer passing yards, but he's got 25 touchdown passes, only two interceptions. He's also run for five touchdowns. Who's better, Penix Jr. or Bo Nix? You have a Heisman ballot in front of you. You have to cast the vote today. I'm voting right now. I'm voting with for Penix. Um, it's mostly because he has that head-to-head victory. He, he was awesome in that game against Oregon. He won the game after, you know, Oregon couldn't get that convert that fourth and two. You know, when you look at the stats, they are pretty comparable. Uh, you know, more passing yards for Penix, but a couple more interceptions. Where Bo Nix may set the NCAA record for 
Uh, completion percentage. So he's right there. I just think it kind of might come down to that final Pac-12 title game if they both get there. But you can't go wrong with either Bo Nix or with Michael Penix right now. Yeah, I'm thinking, too, about the way these teams play. And it's no knock on Bo Nix. He does everything that Oregon asks of him. He's a leader on the field. He is incredibly accurate. He can beat you with his legs. And I think you're going to see him run more in the coming weeks. In particular, if Oregon gets to the conference championship game, look out. I think Bo Nix will be... Uh, you know, they'll turn him loose. I think they've held him back to try to keep him healthy to this point of the season, and justifiably so. But I think, you know, I look at these two teams and I say, okay, which of these guys is doing more for his team? And I don't buy the argument out of Seattle that it's easily a Penix Jr., you know, that he's he's the guy. Uh, I don't buy that argument because I think Bo Nix does a lot of things for Oregon with his accuracy that just kill other teams. And his leadership on the field and the play calling and the decision making that he has to make. I, I do have a Heisman vote. I wrote today at johnconzano.com. If I had to cast the vote today, I would pick I would pick Penix. Not because Washington beat Oregon, just because I think he's just been a little better in those games that were dicey for Washington. He's made plays late. The game against Oregon is one of them, where he throws the touchdown pass right at the end there, to help him get over the top. But this is very much undecided in my book, and I kind of wonder, based on the way the voting goes in the Heisman, I kind of wonder if these guys are going to cannibalize each other just a little bit. I kind of wonder how that's going to go. Do you think there's any other real candidate out there across the nation? Like, you talked about Jaden Daniels. Like, I mean, I guess they have three losses, LSU does, and they're not going to be you know playing for anything big. Caleb Williams, no, they're out of it. Like, I just don't know who the other candidates are. J.J. McCarthy, I guess, at Michigan, but, like, I feel like Knicks and Penix are so far and away above everybody right now that it's going to take a lot to catch yeah. up to. It's going to take some losses from Oregon and Washington to get other guys back and, in this and, I, and that may happen. That may happen because I think Washington is like one loss away from people going, oh, it's Bo Nix's trophy. And I think Oregon is one loss away from him being eliminated from this conversation as well. So, I mean, they've got some really dicey games. The ballots are not due until the day after the conference championship game or the Monday after the conference championship game. But a lot of people will vote on November 27th, November 28th, when the ballots go out. So it's really interesting to, to kind of gauge, like, will people wait for the conference championship game to see what happens? Jaden Daniels right now is behind Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. He's 3-1. to one. J.J. McCarthy at Michigan is 6-1. to one. Jordan Travis at Florida State is 8-1 to one, uh, at MGM. So we'll see what happens. Who's better, Oregon or Washington? I think Oregon's better, even though Washington beat them. Let's take some phone calls. 503-417-7575. I want to. I want you to tell me who's better. Let's go to first from Matt in Fairview. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, John. How you doing? Doing well. Good. Honestly, like, and I got to caveat this. I am an Oregon fan, but I'm also not somebody who can realize that uh, another team is better. And I actually think Oregon is the better team for a couple of reasons. And I'm not saying that Washington is a bad team or they're that far knocked down below Oregon. I think that Oregon and Washington are very comparable teams. Uh, I would say Oregon for two reasons. One, they keep getting better. They're very resilient, and they are more two-dimensional on the offensive side of the ball, and their defense has held really well this year. Um, And I would say the only knock that I would have on Bo Nix versus Penix Jr. is Bo Nix didn't win the game at Washington, and Penix Jr. did. But yeah. I'm not saying Bo Nix is a bad quarterback either. He's phenomenal. His consistency is amazing. 
And honestly, I would say that those guys are one, two, but I couldn't tell you which one I would pick um, right now of which is going to get the Heisman um, because I think there's still a lot of football left to play. But honestly, I think Oregon is just a better team. They're more well-rounded, and we just keep seeing them get better. Yeah, and I, I, that's what I'm looking at. I, I agree with you, and I think Washington is going to get Obviously, Oregon's getting USC this weekend, but I think for Washington, you know, Washington's got Utah. That is not a pushover game, and then Washington's got Oregon State. And I'm way, I'm really eager to see the Washington game at Oregon State. Kickoff time uh, for that one, I think, is going to be a four or four thirty. And uh, in, you know, I came out today. I'll have to look it up here. But when you look at that day, there's not a better game going on anywhere in college football that day. And so I kind of think game day is going to end up in Corvallis on the 18th of November if uh, unless there's some wrinkle that happens as long as Washington State un- state stay excuse me Washington stays undefeated and Oregon State wins against Stanford this weekend uh, ABC's got the game 4:30 on November 18th in Corvallis. I would expect a 10 and 0 Washington team against an 8 and 2 Oregon State team. It's going to have all the eyeballs of America on it, and it's going to be Oregon State's chance to disrupt. And that becomes a big one for Washington's argument. If Look, if Washington goes undefeated, wins the conference championship game, I'm not going to come on the show the Monday after and go, hey, I think Oregon's better. I'm not going to do that. But at this point of the season, what I have seen in the wake of that game at Husky Stadium several weeks ago, Oregon's just been better. Oregon's been more dominant. It's been more complete. It's been more impressive. Washington has continued to win, but... You know, I'm a little skeptical that the Huskies can get through the next two. Let's go to uh, Sam in Portland. Sam, who's better? Well, John, I think, it, you know, you got to look at everything. Um, and I think Penix is better. They're, what, on a 16-game win streak. They're, you know, undefeated this year. And when you, you, you put them head-to-head, Washington won. And the other thing that really maybe people want to think about is coaching. When it comes right down to it, and winning a national title and going all the way, winning the Pac-12, coaching is a big is a big part of it. And they've already proven Washington's already proven they're the best. So until uh, they lose or somebody else coaches them, I have to go with Washington over Oregon. I think it's pretty close. Um, when's the last time, John, that somebody's gone into Research Stadium and won? Isn't it like USC it USC two seasons ago, seventeen fourteen with Caleb Williams? So I think that that's going to be a big game. If Washington can go in and beat Oregon State in Oregon State, that'll be a big game. But, um, you know, I'm pulling for the beefs. And one last thing, when can we talk PSU coaching football? We can do it soon. But I don't think PSU is going to be making a change there. But we can talk about it. Charlie's in Vancouver. Charlie, welcome. John, thanks. Can I bounce all around? Yes, go ahead. First of all, I think that uh, pizza and steak are both great. I'll take the pizza. I'll take Bo Nix because stats lie. He's not asked to do the same thing that Penix Jr. is. He has a running game. Now, again, who's a better quarterback? I don't know. They're, they're just resumes because, again, they're asked to do different things. Would Penix be better if he did have a running game? Would he have those kind of stats if he was held back if he had a, that running game? Um, as far as who's the better team, I think – Oregon probably is, as far as playing everybody in the in the whole Pac-12. But against each other, who knows? It's a coin flip that night, and Washington did it, so I'll give it to them. I think that if we're going to 
ask anything about Jonathan Smith and his decision-making. And I also think we got to ask it about Dan Lanning. I think he has a better team every single time, too, and just does things that put his team in danger. And I would have said that in week one, just I got kind of the idea about him. When I saw him, they scored 120 points against PSU. I just thought, yeah, there's our way and there's our way and everything. But then there's what you should do for the what's to win the game, you know, instead of just our way, our way, getting overly committed to that, in my opinion. Yeah, look, I appreciate that. And I think sometimes the coaches, you know, they've got the – in Dan Lanning's case, I think he had the better team at Husky Stadium. I think he interjected himself in sort of the image that he wants to perpetuate with the program, gunslinger, go for it, all the chips on the table – you know, it helps him recruit. It ha- it's kind of the mantra or the attitude that they have around the program. I think he interjected that into the game plan. And and it's understandable. I didn't mind going for it. I don't mind going for it. But I, I do want you to think about the play calls if you're going for it. If you're going on fourth, consider a run play on third, especially when you're running the ball down their throat. And at the end of the game, if you say, hey, I got fourth and three, I've got Bo Nix, and you don't, and and you can live and die with the outcome of that decision, good. But I don't want you running a rollout to the short side of the field where you really limit what Bo Nix has in front of him. Let Bo play. Uh, he can beat you in a number of different ways. Mark's in Portland. Mark, who's better? Uh, I'm just uh, want to know what the over under on is on you guys uh, finally talking about USC this week because I sure oh. hope Dan Lanning is doing this. Asking, we can't even worry about. Well, we'll get there. What? I know. I'm just because uh, I go back to Matt Barkley. We were we were all talking about a rematch with Oregon and LSU. We had we controlled our own destiny, and instead Alabama in the same conference got the the rematch with a, a t- LSU team that went the other direction at the end of the year. So Matt Barkley came up here, a team that we were better than, a hot quarterback, and he beat us. And that can happen in the Pac-12. And we're facing last year's Heisman Trophy winner. I circled this game because. We're always in this situation as Oregon fans, and we always figure out a game, you know, a way to lose, 2012 against Stanford. So we, the, I just hope Dan Lanning and the team is completely focused on beating USC because they have to take it one game at a time. We haven't beat Oregon State or Washington, so it's fair to say Michael Penix Jr. is the best quarterback. They beat us. They're 9-0. That's like asking, is, is Rocky Marciano legit? They're undefeated. They keep winning every game, no matter what we say about the Huskies. They played a great game against USC. Their offense seems to be unstoppable when when Penix is healthy. So we have to prove that you know that that's not the case. So start talking about Washington being a heavy favorite, John. We're the underdog. <laughs> All right, we have you no got chance it. Chance to win this game. <laughs> no shot to win. Chip on the shoulder. I do think Washington's getting to Vegas. The question is, can Oregon get there to join them? If uh, Oregon State plays the role of spoiler. Uh, Oregon State would have the tie break on Oregon if it wins the head-to-head game, but Oregon State's got to win out in order to do that, and uh, Oregon State's got to take care of Stanford this weekend. And here's the other thing about USC. Alex Grinch getting fired over the weekend after that debacle. Um, USC's defenders lined up in the wrong gaps, don't know their assignments, real confusion, real problem coaching. Finally, USC makes a change there. Does that worry you at all? If you're a Duck fan, you're getting a different coach on defense at USC. I mean, as a, I'm not a Duck fan, but yeah, it's got to, right? It has to affect you some way. You look at uh, you know all these coaching issues that happen even in the NFL. Las Vegas Raiders, they got rid of all their coaches. They went out and they destroyed the Giants. Like, that yeah. stuff happens. So I think that is a, it's a legitimate worrisome. Now, 
the way USC's defense has been all season, you know, 123rd, I believe, in total defense, 124th in points given up, they're not good. So I think Oregon's going to be able to win that game, but I, I think you're going to get a better effort and you're going to get a team that, you know, goes together and plays harder and plays together uh, for at least one week. You know, this is a, such a good topic, John, because it, it puts into the fact of how much you put into head-to-head competition, but how much you look at, you know, the stats and the eye test because Oregon right. passes all of that stuff. But they lost on the field to Washington. Like, I'm with you. I think Oregon's better, but I can't put them ahead of Washington because Washington beat them. And Michael Penix ahead of Modix because they won the game. Like, it's just, it's hard. But I think if you play right now, I'd have to go with Oregon. Like, yeah. I'd pick Oregon 100 times out of 100 if they're going to play this game now. Like, I'm not saying I'm picking them on December 1st, but but right now, I would pick Oregon. And right now, I would put Michael Penix Jr. On top of my ballot, narrowly in front of Bo Nix, just because what Panix does it, for his team. Is it just because Washington's defense doesn't look as good as Oregon's, or what is it? Because the offense for Washington is just as good as Oregon's. I think that Oregon's better on defense. I think Oregon's got a better run game, despite the stats last week. And oh, by the way, Oregon's got to be salivating after seeing Washington get 300 rushing yards on USC. Bucky Irving's going to rush for 200. Uh, let's go to Roy in Portland. Roy, what do you got? Hey, John. Um... You know, Washington has beat you two years in a row. You still you are you are two you you are zero and two against Washington. Same team. Bo Nix is two and zero against Washington. I mean, zero and two against. Zero and two. Yeah. You haven't beaten Washington in two years. So until you beat Washington, I don't want to hear about you know about Oregon. Oregon is not better than Washington. They, if they play today, no, Roy, who do you pick? Beaten. Who do you pick? I'll pick Washington. You haven't beaten Washington in two years. Don't say you. <laughs> Don't say you. It's not me. But Oregon hasn't beaten I mean, Washington. Yeah. I mean, Oregon hasn't beaten. And this is saying it's Bo Nix, same team from last year that went into Eugene and beat Oregon. And you went up to Seattle and you got beat. Until you beat Washington, you're not better than them. And, uh, and, and John, uh, USC, man, <laughs> USC is a joke, man. USC has a Lincoln-Riley problem. They don't have an Alex Grinch problem. As long as Lincoln-Riley is the coach of USC, USC mm-hmm. is not going anywhere. Okay? I don't care. You can run, You can bring in, I don't know, the greatest defensive coordinator you want to bring in. Bring in Nick Saban and Kirby Smart to be co-defensive coordinators for USC. You're still not going anywhere with Lincoln-Riley. <laughs> okay? I- I got a theory on that. How about this, Roy? Here's my theory. I think Lincoln Riley ends up coaching the Las Vegas Raiders next year. Yeah, that that, that could happen. I do. I, I don't see him sticking it out in the Big Ten. I see him either getting fired. I, I don't see Jan Cohen having patience with him. I see him either getting fired or or leaving for the NFL. Because what's going to break all the USC fans' hearts is when he hires somebody on his staff to be the new defensive coordinator. All right. I want more phone calls. Roy says he needs to see it to believe it. How about you? We got Matt holding. We got Mike holding. We got Sean holding. I got lines open. 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I was uh, at the Olympics in 2012. 
and uh, I was at the track that night, and I uh, I watched Galen Rupp and Mo Farah go one two in the men's five thousand meters, and uh, I couldn't believe it. It was um, a remarkable performance. So if you told me that Galen Rupp was going to win an Olympic medal and men's distance running, I would have said, I need to see it to believe it. Same Olympic Games, uh, Usain Bolt was running in the uh, in the 100-meter dash, and Usain Bolt um, in London arrived with all sorts of... Uh, you know accolades already he uh he had the uh he was the uh, reigning olympic champion he was uh he had the the world record um you know he was the question was could he how many events would he medal in how many golds would he win and i didn't need to see it to believe it i knew before usain bolt left the blocks he was going to win i didn't need to see it I don't need to see Oregon play Washington to know that I would pick Oregon right now if they played today. I would, in the same way, I picked Vander Holyfield to beat Mike Tyson. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575. Who's better, Oregon or Washington? Who's better? Who should get your Heisman vote? Michael Penix or Bo Nix? Let's talk about it. Mike in Portland, welcome to the program. Hey, John, man. First of all, man... <laughs> Before we talk about who's better, we're going to have to get out of this Northwest state of mind. Okay, let's do it. It's, it's well known that Oregon, the state of Oregon, do not produce champions. They have never produced anyone except the Trailblazers. But Michael Pennant is better, and obviously the people that put the schedule together thought they were better because they gave the Ducks this easy schedule. If the Ducks were so great, how come they didn't have a better schedule? Because the schedulers didn't believe it. So, John, what I'm trying to tell you, man, is what I told you as long as I've been calling this station. You can't make a racehorse out of a mule. You keep trying. It just ain't going to work, man. Talk to you later. There he is, Mike in Portland. I was in Colorado over the weekend, Mike. Uh, Let's go to uh, Sean in Vancouver. Sean, welcome to the show. Sean, go ahead. Hey, hey, John. Hope you and your family are well. Um, so, you. you know, I'm 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 an SEC fan. I'm a Georgia fan, as you as you've heard me say before. So I've been watching Bo Nix for a while. And at the end of the day, you know, the guy has only faced a small handful of legit defenses up here. And when he faced the SEC chan- or the uh, SEC defenses, uh, he got in the portal and left. So, you know, Penix did face a legit defense and he won the game. Uh, right now, looking at Penix, I think he's a better guy. You still raise a really good question, who's going to win again when Oregon and Washington, in my opinion, will face each other. Because I think I, I think be able to keep the Pac-12 out of the, the Pac-12 champion out of that you know Final Four right. at the end of the year. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, I, I came up with this while I was listening. Lincoln Riley, I agree with you. I told somebody this exact same thing today. You know, whenever uh, Oklahoma decided to leave for the SEC, he went to the Pac-12. And now that they're going to the Big Ten, which has, what, like four of the top six defenses or something, he's not going to stick around. He's going to go to the NFL um, where they'll pay him a whole lot of money. You know, him and, uh, you know, I think uh, Jim Harbaugh as well, who's going to pull a Pete Carroll and leave while the seat's so hot. So, 
Yeah, uh, look, and Lincoln Riley's making a whole bunch of money right now. He's making $10 million a year. But I think he is finding that the USC thing wasn't going to be as easy or advantageous as he may have thought it was going to be. I think he thought he was going to get better players than everybody else. I think he thought he was going to have an easier ride. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that plagued him at Oklahoma, really, really good offense, no defense, plagues him again at USC. I also think there's a mentality issue. There's a culture issue at USC that nobody's talking about. The kinds of players that wanted to come play for Lincoln Riley to leave their schools, jump in the portal, go play for Lincoln Riley, they're not grinders. They are elite athletes who are five-star recruits who maybe don't know what it is to compete and be part of something bigger than themselves. And I think when things go wrong, those kinds of athletes turn on each other and they splinter apart as a team. And I think you're seeing it in two places that had tremendous transfer portal activity in the Pac-12. It's USC and Colorado. Really talented players at both places. But when times get tough, those rosters have not banded together. They have divided and splintered apart. You've got tremendous culture at three places right now in the Pac-12 conference. I asked Nick Galliotti this this morning. I said, where are the best culture programs in the Pac-12? And he said, Utah, Oregon State, and Oregon have the best culture. Part of that is I think that those three programs, while Oregon's getting higher-level recruits, have done a really good job of taking on the persona of the coach, the head coach, and the coaching staff. And there's a whole lot of growth. There's a whole lot of layers to it. There is transfer activity at Oregon to some extent, but it's not like what you're seeing at at uh, USC or Colorado. And Oregon State and, and Utah have the, the least frequent transfer portal activity in the last two seasons. But wouldn't so, you say Oregon's transfer portal is pretty relevant? Like Bo Nix, Tez Johnson... Uh, Bucky Irving, like the three, three of the better offensive players are all. Yeah, but they're not one year. They're not one year guys. Bo Nix comes two years ago. Tez Johnson's like Bo Nix's brother. Bucky Irving could have gone anywhere. He comes to Oregon, then he stays at Oregon. Like you know, a lot of people thought with some of the guys Oregon was adding and recruiting, would Bucky Irving leave? Would he go somewhere else, or was he going to be a one year guy? These are second year guys who came through the portal, and so maybe a year ago. You know, you don't quite have the bond that you have a year later. These guys have played together for two years. It's been Bucky Irving. It's been Bo Nix. Tez Johnson's known Bo Nix forever. I mean, I don't know if, uh, you know, that they're like they're legally, you know, brothers, but they're close to it. You yeah, know, no. it's just, it's like, it's really interesting to kind of look at the dynamic. And there's some exceptions. And look, there's exceptions all over the conference. You can go to Utah and Oregon State and find guys who were first year transfers, but you don't, you don't find 57. You know, and you don't find 37. You just find some activity. I think that's the thing about college sports, college basketball, college football, is you know the transfer portal is so relevant now, right? And it seems like you can just change your team in a year. But it's that fine line of finding enough players that can fit your culture, but also retaining those players as well. Like, it doesn't work when you bring in 57 new guys like USC and Colorado has the last couple seasons. But it can work when you bring in a couple you know, really important guys like DJ Uyunglele or Bo Nix. Yes. I, I, it's that combination of, yes, you want to bring in some guys in the transfer portal, but you don't want your team full of those guys because 
for the for, for a lot of times, those guys left their first schools for a reason. It's because they weren't didn't want to compete, or they you know they weren't good enough, or they got beat out. Right? I mean, yeah, some, they got, in some cases. Exactly. So I, I think it's that it's that like you said, it's that fine line of finding the transfers, but also yeah. fitting your culture. It and it's interesting because I've seen I've seen it done wrong. Like I think Dana Altman at Oregon had it had it locked down when he was recruiting three and four star guys, keeping them in the program for extra years. Jordan Bell. Tyler Dorsey, great examples of that. Dylan Brooks, great example of that. Peyton Pritchard, a guy who was there for multiple years. But in and around that, Oregon got good and went to a Final Four, and suddenly, you know, here was uh, Dana Altman who had access to Bull Bull and Lewis King. And it was a different caliber of player. It was a five-star guy that was a one-and-done player. And what happened? Not as much success. Because what? Other programs had guys that were in the program for two and three years, and you lose some of that. You know, it's a really tricky line to walk, and I think Colorado's trying to figure out, you know, how what kind of turnover ideally do you want to have in a year? USC's dealing with some of that, but there's not a lot of team going on at those two places, and I think it's why they're losing games. I, Matt, I, uh, yeah, go, go ahead. I, I was going to say real quick, it's going to be interesting to see what Colorado does next season with those guys, how many they retain yeah. and how many leave, because, uh, I mean, they're 4-5 and five right now. I imagine they're going to be about 5-7 and seven at the best. So are they going to leave or are they going to stay? Yeah, there's finger-pointing going on at USC and Colorado like no place else in the Pac-12 right now. Matt, welcome to the program. Hey, John. Yeah, love you so, man. Uh, and Eugene. Moved here in 2009, grew up in Tacoma, Seattle area, so I'm a lifetime Husky fan. Um, I have a just a healthy, realistic fear of Oregon every single year. You know, 12 straight years, just brutal um, sitting through that. So it's so hard, you know, when you see Oregon just, just dominating teams right now and watching my Husky struggle against Stanford, struggle against Arizona State. Let USC put up 42 points. It's I can't pick against my team. Just can't do it. But I don't want to see them again. I'd rather not see Oregon in a Pac-12 championship game. I'd rather see Utah, Oregon State, USC again. Like anybody else, just by the way Oregon's playing. Like we already beat them once. We have nothing else to prove. We beat Oregon. That's we're, I'm good. You know, I, I just want to get to the playoffs. Uh, so I want to beat Oregon State. I want to beat Utah. Um, that's where I'm at. So I, I can't pick against my team. I pick Washington, but I, I don't want to play Oregon again. You know? um, yeah. So. Well, I appreciate. What's it like to live there in Eugene? You're like living behind enemy lines. You know. What's yeah. it like for you? Yeah. Good. Good when we win. Last two years have been great. Yeah. <laughs> last two years have been great. Um, it's hard. It's hard when we lose, though. You know. Obviously, I, I don't miss a game. I go to Austin. Um, I sit through the games at Austin, and I go up to Washington with my family and go to those games every single year we play Oregon. Um, I don't miss one. It's an amazing rivalry. I think it's really cool that they, they slotted Oregon and Washington as the last game in the Big Ten schedule next year. It's kind of cool. I, I mean, bummed to see the Apple Cup go and the, the Civil War, but it, at least it's cool that they put Oregon-Washington in that game kind of to replace those two as the – you know the nightcap on the on the conference season. Um, I just love college football, man. You know, and this rivalry is it's a lot of fun, uh, but there is a true hatred between Oregon and Washington fans. You know, not, there's none, nothing like it. Yeah, I always wonder what it's like for Washington fans or Oregon fans who are living in Seattle or Eugene, vice versa, and 
in dealing with that. There's been some talk about resurrecting the Apple Cup rivalry or extending it beyond this season, neutral site game, Labor Day next year. I asked Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, about it last week. He said, quote, news to me, end quote. Um, I don't think that that as much as the sides are all going to say, we're working on this, just like in the Civil War, Rob Mullen, Scott Burns, hey, we're working on it, we're working on it. I need to see it to believe it. That's one of these things I do need to see. Because I think there's there's sort of a disincentive right now for Oregon and Washington to play Oregon State and Washington State because I think it's going to be viewed by the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. Uh, you know, Unless something changes, I think it's going to be viewed more like, hey, that's a Mountain West Conference opponent or that's a group of five team. You want to go on the road and play at Corvallis if you're Oregon? Where the Beavers, you know, beat you last year. That the Beavers, like, that is a difficult game to win and could potentially make you look bad. Simultaneously, does Washington want to go to Pullman? I don't know. Like, I would love to see it, but I'm I'm looking at it from their standpoint and I'm going, I don't I just don't know if they're gonna be in a hurry to kind of get this going. They might say they are. They might like it as a home game. But are they going to want to go on the road and play that game? And so I think that's a really interesting conversation moving forward. Uh, let's go to Cam, who is in Eugene, Oregon, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Cam, go. Hey, John, you might as well play the Beavers on your spree time if you're the Oregon Ducks because you got to do something the week Alabama's playing Chattanooga. Am I right or am I right? Uh, as for Bo Nix and Penix, i, I got to go back to the year we were sitting there Everybody was trying to pick between RG3 and Andrew Luck. They're both amazing quarterbacks. One of them probably translates a little bit better to the NFL, and it's mostly about what flavor of awesome do you want because they're both just great. I can't pick between them because I'm an Oregon fan, and that won't be fair. But getting to the finish line, I wanted to point this out because it's been on my radar. If Oregon does it, if they go down there and, and to Las Vegas and they run table and they beat Washington, you'll have an Oregon team that's played tough on the road at Texas Tech in Seattle against Utah and then in a neutral site in Vegas. I really, for the life of me, can't remember a tougher Oregon road team than that one would be uh, if it – if it come, if we can get across the finish line and win the Pac-12 tournament, and I think I think we might have a real racehorse to reference another caller in Oregon as Road Warriors, if if that all comes to fruition. Yeah, we'll see what happens on that front. I I look November 14th, big date as far as the Pac-12, the Pac-2, all of that stuff. I was sifting through some of the discovery today uh, that Washington provided last fr- last Monday. Um, I went through 366 pages this morning of reviewing email messages and text messages and a lot of it just shows in july and august uh, a lot of what was going on behind the scenes michael is in eugene listening on fox sports eugene go ahead michael john it's been a while buddy i'm uh traveling with the team i took a bye for cal but i'll be on the road all the way in here so that Husky guy is right to fear Oregon right now because they will not beat Oregon on a neutral field, not if we are healthy. Washington right now, I know they ran the ball against USC, and who hasn't? That doesn't even count. And that SEC guy that called in before, we went into Utah 
and really humbled those guys, which, as you know, is almost impossible to do. Dan Lanning is a great modern football coach. He has us on the muscle. And with a defense like that and a running game like that, they didn't even play well. And they beat Cal by 24, by 44 points. Um, I just think my dogs are fighting. I think, I think it's going to be a special year one at a time. Uh, and the Big Ten may have four of the top ten defenses against who? They have one quarterback in that league. That's Iowa. The kind of they're, they're, they're killing yeah, Iowa. Exactly. Yeah, that's the kind of narrative that they use when they hose the Ducks out of the 2001 title game with those Sagarin rankings, which is I'm glad we're joining the Big Ten because I think you get an automatic berth to the NCAA tournament just by having a membership <laughs> card. Love it. Michael and Eugene throwing shade. Our big splash is coming up at uh, 4 o'clock. Uh, we're going to talk to the play-by-play voice of Stanford football, attorney and broadcaster John Platts will be joining us, uh, former Cardinal athlete. He's written a book as well. Uh, he's gonna, We're talking about Stanford, but he's got a great view of the whole conference. I'll ask him the question, Oregon or Washington, who's better? You know, He's been watching. He's seen both of those programs up close. Oregon and Washington, who's better? Penix Jr., Knicks, who, who should have the Heisman vote right now? Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I got great questions today in the Monday mailbag. Can read it by going to johnconzano.com. Uh, I wrote a little bit about the Heisman Trophy vote, and uh, you reminded me of a story. Um, you know, uh, Paul Bucher, who longtime sports writer at the Oregonian. Paul Bucher uh, would would cover Oregon State. He's covered everything at, at uh, for the newspaper over the years. But he's one of my favorite people to sit by at a game, and one of my favorite people to read. And I. Uh, I don't know if you've read him, but incredibly funny, almost Mark Twain-like with his wit and his humor and um, biting insults, uses a scalpel, not a sledgehammer to make fun of people and to to tell the truth. But um, I reached out to him this morning because I remembered that there was some controversy surrounding his Heisman Trophy ballot years and years ago. And I only heard the story because when I got to the paper... The Heisman Trust said, hey, we would like for you to to vote in the Heisman race, and I have uh, for several years, and I still have that vote. And But Buecher got stripped of his Heisman vote in the late 1980s. They took his vote away. Um, and I reached out to him this morning. I said, what's the backstory on them taking the vote for you? Because I couldn't remember it quite right. And it had to do with the 1988 Heisman race. Buecher was covering... Portland State football, and Portland State had a left-handed quarterback named Chris Crawford, who was fantastic, threw for like 7,000 yards in his career at Portland State, took the Vikings to uh, back-to-back NCAA Division II championship games, 1987-1988, Western Football Conference, MVP, All-American, really good D2 player. And Buecher put Chris Chris Crawford on the top of his Heisman ballot and sent it in. <laughs> and so 
Uh, of course, the Portland State quarterback got no other votes. But Buecher told me this morning, quote, I got a call from somebody telling me I was no longer a Heisman voter. <laughs> End quote. They took his vote away. Um, I looked up Chris Crawford today. Did not make the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He did have kids, and he went on to have a successful career as an executive of Nike. Died after a battle uh, with leukemia in 2019. He was only 51. Way too young. But uh, I hope that Chris Crawford knew that in his senior year of college at Portland State, that there was a sports writer on press row who saw him play quarterback and stuck his neck out for him. Paul Buecher thought that Chris Crawford was the most outstanding player in all of college football, and he put his name on the ballot, and he sent it in. And it cost him his voting privileges, but damn it, it might be true. Who knows? Heisman's kind of uh, funny that way. Uh, let's go to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. This is the big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger. Voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger's 10 rad burger builds will send your taste buds on an epic journey. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. I got a couple of things to get to here, but let's start with the Big Ten in Michigan. Conference officially and formally notified Michigan that it could be facing disciplinary action from the league. Like Big Ten sent a letter to Michigan as part of its sportsmanship policy, which uh, requires a notice of action. Uh, it, it's becoming more clear that, that the institution's likely to be subjected to some kind of disciplinary action. Who knows what it'll be? Um, Big Ten Commissioner Tony Petiti has the authority to... Uh, to uh, issue that kind of punishment, and uh, there's been some illegal signal-stealing allegations. There's been questions about competitive integrity. There's been questions about sportsmanship. Michigan has until Wednesday to respond to the Big Ten. Uh, By the way, uh, uh, the selection committee will meet on Tuesday. They're meeting today and tomorrow morning. Rankings will be out tomorrow Curious to see whether or not the committee, the playoff committee, will sanction Michigan by dropping them in the polls. Keep an eye on that. Michigan and Ohio State yet to play. Second uh, story that is out there, a little bit of a splash. How big a deal is this one? Uh, We're talking about uh, Robert Williams III will undergo a right knee surgery. No details yet. Adrian Wojnarowski reporting it. How big a story is that? Uh, I think it's big because he's a big trade piece for the Blazers. The Blazers are obviously not trying to win a championship this year. They're looking to build assets, and he's one of those guys you can get assets for. So uh, I think if it's out for a while, you may not get as many assets as you thought you could. You thought you could. Well, he's going to be out for a while. Looks like he needs a knee surgery. Coming up, John Platts, Stanford broadcaster. I'm going to ask him not only about Stanford, but who's better, Oregon or Washington? Stick around. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Oregon State coach Jonathan Smith was uh, asked today about going for it, took some points off the board against Colorado. You know, if you saw it, they had an extra point. Colorado was penalized. 
half the distance to the goal and the extra point. Smith said, no, no, we'll take the ball. We're going to go for two. Snap the ball over DJ Uengalele's head. Colorado picks it up, goes 88 yards for two points the other way. Jonathan Smith was asked about the logic of it today. And he made a uh, he made a uh, comparison or an analogy with uh, being at a blackjack table. This this one the the thing was in our favor. Uh, you know we've got a 250 pound quarterback, one of the best O lines in the country. We got a yard and a half to get. I feel like it's a lot like playing blackjack. Got dealt 11. The dealer's showing six. I'm doubling our points, doubling the money. And yeah, didn't work out. You know rifles over his head, but. You know, you've been at that table before. You got 11. You can double your money. You're going to go do that. Speak for yourself. Yeah. I'm doubling down every time. I am. He also said he thinks Stanford got better throughout this season. Uh, really, all three phases, both sides of the ball. I thought what, how they played defense uh, last week, they, they continue to battle. I look at their uh, competitiveness, their scoring previous week against UW. That thing's down the wire. I think it's three minutes, two-point game. They've got the ball. Um, throwing it better. Got a couple of talented receivers. Schematically, Troy does a great job of challenging the defense. And so they, they got a lot a lot of good to them. Here to talk about it, Stanford play-by-play broadcaster John Platts. He's also the author of a book, The Illustrated History of Stanford Football. If you're out there, there's a book being released within the next couple days. Uh, it is a hardback book 420 pages 160 photos it's available only at the stanford bookstore and uh john platt's here to talk about all of that plus the game coming up this weekend welcome well, you've been busy with that book huh uh well i have been john and thank you for the reach i just want the listeners to know i i didn't initiate this so that you could promote the book you, you no you, i reached you did, out to you, you. Reached out to me. Yeah. yeah and uh, i just i didn't want the book to drop and then have you go hey how come you didn't tell me so uh, but thank you for for mentioning it. And uh, apologies again. The question was yeah. The, the book. All right, let's talk, the book. Farm Foundation, illustrated history of Stanford football. Like any Stanford fan's going to want it. Like, tell me what goes into that. How did you get the idea to do it? And you know, and and how comprehensive was that process? Well, it, it, it's a sort of it was been a five year deal, John. I wrote a book in 2015 on the occasion of the hundredth anniversary of the basketball program. I've been doing the games on radio for basketball since the late 80s. And that was a small hardback six by nine, and and uh, it was it was well received. Again, largely it's just, it's Stanford fans and Stanford community. Um, and I sort of a couple years later, 2017, 2018, I looked into looked into it, and no one had written a football book. And by that time, I was on the football broadcast team at the time doing the sideline. And I thought, well, I mean, over time, I, I can do this. So I, in 2017, I started to write a little bit here, a little bit there, and. You know, the program goes back to 1892. You know, Walter Camp, for whom the Walter Camp Award is, is is named, was a coach at Stanford in the 1890s. Pop Warner, you know, the Pop Warner Football Leagues. Pop Warner coached at Stanford. He coached Ernie Nevers as an NFL Hall of Famer in the 1920s. You know, Nevers played against the Four Horsemen in the Rose Bowl on two recently broken ankles that were just barely healed, and Stanford barely lost the game. He played all 60 minutes. And you go through the years, and you've got, you know, John Elway and James Lofton and Heisman winner Jim Plunkett. Then the last 15 years, John, as you well know, it's been, uh, except for the last two or three, just tremendous with five Heisman runner-ups between 20, 2009 and 2017. I mean, like, where does that, how does that happen? I mean, that's, that's, 
that's something I think that, that it's a story that needs to be written. I'm sort of the guy to do it. I wanted to do it. I had enough of a runway to write it. And it's, it's uh, you know, knock on wood dropping this week. So I've been trying to manage that, John, with the, the Port of Oakland and a, a fulfillment center in San Jose. And um, I'm better at writing than I am at sort of overseeing the logistics, but we're, we're almost we're almost at the finish line. Book's called Farm Foundation for people who are interested in it. And right now you get it at the Stanford Bookstore coming out in a couple of days and uh, be a good uh, be a good holiday gift. John Platt's with us, uh, the voice of Stanford and uh, an analyst and broadcaster on football and basketball. Let's talk about football this season. Feel like the season started out maybe with not a lot of hope, and then Stanford really seems to be playing better. What what has happened in that time? Well, I, I, I would say you know, 80 to 90% of it is the excellence of Troy, Troy Taylor, the head coach, and his staff. John, I've been really, really impressed with multiple phases of this head coach. He, he came recommended to Stanford by Chris Peterson and others, uh, a coach in whom the Stanford administration has high regard, of course, the former Boise State and UW coach. Um, Troy Taylor uh, you know, is, is positive. He's got sort of the foremost ethos of football culture, having these years be, you know, holistic, get your education, but let's do this football thing well. But, John, the thing that's most impressive are the practices, the, the schematics and the practices. John, the Stanford football practices are unlike what I've, what I've seen in four decades. In the two hours, the, the drills are quick, snap, 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 and then they run to the next drill, snap, snap, snap. And it's not a physical conditioning thing. It's, it's you know, our guys are young. We've struggled, so let's get as many reps as we can over the two-hour period. And I think it's, it's starting to, to bear fruit. As, you know, does Stanford have the four or five NFL draftees on this roster? No. But the goal of a coach being, hey, let's maximize the talent level of whoever we have, that, that's starting to happen. And obviously last week you hold Washington State up in Pullman to, to seven points. I mean, that's, that's pretty darn impressive. Bobby April is a defensive coordinator, comes from Wisconsin which, as you know, John, has had good defenses, particularly run defenses over the last half dozen years. He's the son of an NFL, long-time NFL assistant coach. So the coaching staff is really solid, really positive. Guys have bought in, and that's why Stanford is not is not spiraling. They're actually getting better in this, in this part of the season. John Platt's with us. Are they getting better quarterback play, better running back play? Did they find something with a connection with a you know great receiver, obviously, that – just absolutely punished Colorado. Did it happen during the Colorado game? If there was a switch that got flipped, what do you see? Well, I mean, I think you nailed it, John. I mean, Stanford was struggling in, the, in that Colorado game. It was Friday the 13th in October. Halftime, Stanford's down 29 to nothing. I'm looking at my broadcast partner going, well, no, here we go again. You know, let's, let's fill the, the second half in the, in, the, in the proper way. But Stanford just turned it around after halftime, and and Alec Iomanner, who's a young man, he's a red, redshirt freshman uh, from Medicine Hat, Canada. Uh, he went to prep school in the, in the eastern part of the United States. Uh, you know, we, we'd seen him in practice. He's six uh, three. He, he's real fast, uh, but he hadn't he hadn't put up numbers, John. And all he did in the second half, he didn't have any catches in the first half. He had uh, 13 catches for 294 yards in the second half and three touchdowns. Stanford's single game record was Troy Walters with 278 way back in 99 i think it was so he and obviously people saw the highlights of him sort of not decapitating but but stealing a, a touchdown over the head of travis hunter you know the great uh colorado defensive back so he, he burst on the scene and johnny's been consistent since then he had a real good catch a, a deep ball against washington state 
that set up the only Stanford touchdown a, a couple of days ago. So he's been kind of a, a foundational piece of the offense along with Ashton Daniels, John, who's really, really come on. In October, he had 85 completions. He had over 1,000 yards throwing, and he's, Stanford was alternating quarterbacks in September. They're not doing that anymore. Daniels is 6'2", 215. He can run, but he's really got a feel in the pocket. He, he, he stands in there long enough, and if he sees it breaking down, he knows how, when and where to flush out so he can make throws on the run. So I, I think I think Daniels, Ashton Daniels, the quarterback, and Alec Ioman or the receiver have been sort of the underpinnings of the uh, the improvement of the offense. And Tiger Bachmeyer is a true freshman who plays the other wide out. He's a kid from Lake Elsinore, which is in Southern California. And he's just kind of a wiry, you know, make adjust his body to the ball and, and kind of make some some spectacular catches. So and it's, it's been more pass game, John, than run game. The run game for Stanford is the quarterbacks. Well, Justin Lampson, who comes in every now and then to, to run the football largely, although he threw a pass against the Cougars. You know, Stanford has the run game with the quarterbacks and then the pass game that's evolving. Give me an idea. You got to see Stanford just a couple of weeks ago. You got Oregon, you know, earlier in the season. We ha- we asked our listeners earlier which of those two teams you'd pick if they were playing today. Do you have a feel about that? I do. I, I mean, they're, they're both very, very good. And I kind of think that if they do meet in Las Vegas, which I think is is odds on, no guarantees, Oregon State may have, obviously has something to say about that. But it probably will be a single-digit margin, whoever prevails. Having said that, having seen both of them play at Stanford Stadium against uh, the Cardinal, you know, I give the nod to Oregon. Uh, the, the September 30th game was 42-6. Uh, uh, the, the Ducks triumph the October 28th game, 42-33. And as you pointed out before I came on, Stanford was driving and had a fourth and three, and they had a gadget play, a reverse yeah, throw I that saw it. the receiver dropped. It was shin level. If he catches that, the Stanford's field goal kicker can kick him 60-plus. Stanford might have taken the lead in the final couple of minutes, final minute 30. So, um, you know, based on playing against Stanford, I give the nod to Oregon. I, that defense uh, looks solid uh, for me, a bit better than, than Washington's, at least at the current time. And that, that I love Bucky Irving. I mean, Dylan Johnson did did a real good job this last week. He was kind of pedestrian against Stanford a couple of weeks ago. So I just, you know, the, the Oregon run game, the Oregon defense, and then Bo Nix, you know, mature, hungry, great stats. I mean, that that is a great centerpiece for, for which to make a national championship run. So I I give the nod to Oregon, but, of course, nobody would be surprised, A, if they meet in Las Vegas, and B, if Washington with the great Michael Penix is able to to do a a second win over Oregon. John Platt's with us, uh, Stanford, uh, former Stanford athlete and uh, an author and also the football and basketball radio broadcaster. Um, Platt's, let me ask you, you know, there's a lot of final last times going on, meaning, you know, it was the last time Oregon State was going to Colorado, last time... Yeah, Oregon's playing against uh, you know maybe Stanford in in some time unless they schedule in a non-conference game. Uh, this last time for Stanford going to Oregon State uh, is is significant too because these are members that have been in this conference 108 years of history. Um, are are you enduring any of that or are you just kind of calling the season or is that in the back of your mind at all? Well, you know, of course, it's in the back of my mind, John. I'm, I'm doing, a, I think, a professional job of sort of veering away from it in commentary. There, there's a temptation during a break or a replay to kind of edge in there, particularly if you're feeling it. 
but I, I've not talked about it on the air. But but as you and I have talked off the air, I mean, it's it's really tough. I mean, I think there's there's a silent majority out there, John. I mean, I think it's tens of thousands of people that grew up with this conference, and it's from the you know Canadian Washington border, obviously through all of Oregon and California, but then in the last four decades, the Arizona schools, the last decade, the the mountain schools, and you know people have grown up with this. And it's not just that you root for your team, but but you love the league. You you love the geographies. I've been lucky enough, John, to go to all these places. And as you know, the football stadiums, when you're up in the press box, are magnificent. It's like it's like postcard viewing, and you have all the histories. And gee, the Oregon game this year. What about the '89 game when Stanford had two onside kicks and one at the last? But I mean, you have all that in your mind, and you can offer that. And somebody listening to it remembers, oh yeah, my granddad and I were at the game, or, or whatever. And all that's being blown up and I understand realities of business um, but I also wonder too John again this is me being defensive probably but you know West Coast viewers for game day next year year after I mean you know Bay Area market I'm, I'm speaking to but you know is, is did they reach for too much by sort of ripping up the geographies and trying to you know make make the grand great matchups without a, a history or tradition so obviously that's my personal view professionally and this is and professionally is the correct way to go. Hey, we're moving on. Stanford is, is you know, way that the alternatives decided to go to the ACC, and so we'll we'll make it happen. John, let me ask you about the Stanford Oregon State matchup specifically. You've seen a little bit of Oregon State. Probably watched them late night on Saturday night against Colorado. How does this matchup go in your mind? Um, uh, hard, a little bit hard to, to fathom, just because I. I watch Jonathan Smith, and, and the teams get better every year. Um, the names are somewhat similar to last year, although DJ Uya Galele at the quarterback is, is, the, is the new face. But, John, you remember last year, Stanford had Oregon State beat, and, and that was a 3-9 and nine Stanford team. But uh, Ben Gilbranson had that, that great throw that resulted in the touchdown in the final 40 seconds, and, and Stanford's defeat turned into to loss. So, you know, it's a research stadium. Oregon has a lot to play for. So that, that I think that setup makes it tough for Stanford. Now Stanford's going to battle. Troy Taylor's going to have it schemed up as best he can, um, but obviously it, it's uphill, given what Oregon State's playing for and the fact that I think Jonathan Smith does a good job of getting his players to respect whatever opponent and, and sort of impart to them that hey, you know, Coach Taylor, look what he did at, at Pullman the week prior. Stanford wins ten to seven. So uphill for Stanford, but the Cardinal will battle, and I think schematically they'll 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 offer the best shot at the beast. Yeah, I, I keep looking around the conference, and I think it's going to be a hell of a three weeks here that we have ahead. And USC, obviously, Caleb Williams climbing into the stands after the USC game has that moment where his mom's holding it. I mean, it just melted me. I know he's getting criticized for it by some people, but I just think it was such an authentic moment watching, watching I love the, Caleb. I love it. I love the heart, John. I mean, it, you know, for, for all those that say uh, he's just a free agent, he's just teeing up his – his, his, you know, draft positioning or his brand, whatever that that wasn't brand stuff. You know, it, it, it meant something to him. And I'll tell you what, John. I mean, that guy, that guy's pumping out forty points. Or his teams are pumping out forty points, and you just can't deny the talent. It's not going to happen Heisman-wise, obviously, because of the struggles of the team. I think it shouldn't, but that's kind of the reality of how this thing works. Uh, you know, Penix and Knicks are are above him, but man, what a talent! And, and you love a guy who wants to win that badly. I'm with you, hundred percent. Who do you like right now in that Heisman race? If you know, I've got a vote, and I, I think right now, if I had to make a pick, I pick Penix, with a little bit left to play. But who do you like? 
if you press me, I mean, it's, for me, it's hard to parse Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, J.J. McCarthy, and then Marvin Harrison Jr. I'm not sure if you mentioned him earlier on your show. You might have. But Michigan plays Ohio State. Marvin Harrison Jr. is a is a I think a generational wide receiver, uh, you know, the son of, of course, the NFL player, Marvin Harrison, you know, one of those two, those two plays. So maybe one of those goes down a, a, a pike. John, something tells me Bo Nix is, is going to win it. I, mean, I know that's a reach, but I, if you ask me to, to predict, I think I can see Oregon winning out. And I think the voters, and, and this is a sore point with a lot of Stanford folks, and it's in my book, John, Christian McCaffrey in 2015 set the yep. purpose record. I mean, you followed that season, 3,864 yards, kick returning, punt returning, pass catching, and, and, and rushing for over 2,000 yards. I, I want to say on 22% of the Heisman ballots that year, he wasn't even in the top three. And I, I, I couldn't, I, I still can't believe that. Are, are, are the voters that ill-informed or that, gee, I got to go to bed at 10 a.m. and the Stanford game's on 10 a.m. Eastern? Uh, that, that, that was criminal to me. I mean, that was, that was malpractice. So, uh, uh, so, so because of that, because of the publicity with that, I, I kind of think that the voters will be responsible and wait for the Pac-12 championship game and, mm-hmm. and submit the ballot on Sunday, the third, I guess it is, the deadline for you voters. And if, if Bo Nix leads the, the Ducks to the to CFP, and he's probably going to have good numbers, and you talked about the running, he had an 80-yard touchdown run against Stanford last year, 25 touchdowns, just two interceptions. He's leading. I kind of think that in a very close race, he might be the one. I mean, for sure he's going to New York as a finalist. But if you press me now, I I think it might be Knicks. John Platts, Stanford Radio. Check out his book as well. It's out here coming out this week. It is an illustrated history of Stanford football called Farm Foundation. You can get it at the Stanford Bookstore. Platts, uh, I appreciate you. I will see you down the road. All right, John. Thank you. Nice talking with you. There he is. He likes Bo Nix, Stephen. He says he thinks Bo Nix is going to win it. If Oregon wins out, you'd have a hard time not seeing it that way. I thought Penix coming out of the Oregon game had the lead clearly, and I think Nix has has narrowed that lead to just a little bit. If you really look at Bo Nix's season, 25 touchdown passes, he really should have one interception. He had one bounce off a receiver's hands. Uh, last week, and Cal ended up uh, intercepting the pass. He has just been very good. Opposing defensive coordinators talk about the fact that he just doesn't make mistakes. Yeah, it's it's like John said. If the voters wait when they should, and they vote after the conference championship game, it almost seems like right now, whoever wins that conference championship game is going to be the Heisman Trophy winner between Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix. Now, I think you can argue... What team is better? But at that point, when you're when you're deciding Heisman Trophy, it kind of matters on the field what happens, right? So I think you know right now I think Oregon's a better team. But if Washington were to beat Oregon for the Pac-12 title, I would have to give it to Penix at that point. But I think Bo Nix is right there, and I think he probably you know should be the second favorite right behind Michael Penix Jr. And if you tell me that Bo Nix is the favorite right now, I, I wouldn't argue that either. Like it, it's it's that close. Those two have put up some unbelievable numbers, and I do think like without those two guys on those two teams. They're not in the situation they're in right now. So they, they've been the best players in college football so far, and I think you know the winner of that award basically will be the winner of the Pac-12, and they're getting to the college football playoff. Give me an idea, though, because I got the argument today from some readers who said, well, Bo Nix in that offense throws a bunch of short passes. No wonder his completion percentage is so high. He's got a bunch of weapons. He throws short passes. 
Um, and in knocking that in a way that just, you know, sort of says, look, you know, maybe Michael Penix is the better pro prospect. He's the better player. But I don't knock Bo Nix for the offense he's playing in. I mean, he, he orchestrates it like, a, you know, he's a conductor of a symphony. And, he's, you know, he spreads the ball around. He sees everything. He, does, he just doesn't make a mistake. And I've watched Penix. Penix will make a mistake. And I told you in the Oregon-Washington game, in fact, you and I were texting with each other during that game, and, you know, Washington had the ball right before half, and I texted you, Penix is going to make a mistake. And the very next pass, he threw a pick. He'll just, he takes some risk. He takes some chances. He leans heavily on his arm and his natural talent. He's got a phenomenal arm. He has vision as well. He's a really good player. But I don't, I'm not going to downgrade Nix because he's in an offense where he's required to spread the ball around and guys are wide open. No, because you still have to execute, right? Like, I mean, you look at other guys in these type of offenses, and it doesn't work as well as Bo Nix. Bo Nix has a chance to set the all-time NCAA record for completion percentage. Like, you have to give him credit. It doesn't matter what offense you're in. You can't just throw any quarterback in that situation and have them be that effective. So, yeah, I'm with you. Like, Bo Nix, yes, the offense is suited absolutely perfect for him. The running game is perfect for him. He can play off of that. He can run when he has to. But at the same time, you still have to execute. And he's doing a really good job of that, and he's not making mistakes. And I think right now, you know, it's a college football award. It's not an NFL award. And if it's an NFL award, who's going to be the better quarterback in the NFL? You can go Penix, and I'm fine with that. But right now, if you're just looking at the college football season, it's hard to argue that anyone's been better than Bo Nix all year long. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of the issue is that, you know, we're we're nitpicking and we're asking, okay, which of these two guys is going to win the Heisman? Which guy is the better player? You know, who's the better team? And I, yeah, this stuff needs to get settled on the field, and we got you know you have three weeks of the regular season plus the conference championship game to get there. All right, so much more ahead. We're going to talk about Caleb Williams, USC. How will they respond after the firing of their defensive coordinator Alex Grinch? Is Oregon uh, facing a dicey situation? And what do we make of the fourth quarter of Oregon State's game? Plus. A lot ahead on the NFL front. Raiders looking for a coach, but looked pretty good over the weekend. And uh, a big Monday night football game coming up uh, as well. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Washington Outlast USC on Saturday night. I was in Boulder, Colorado. I got to be honest with you. The Colorado Oregon State game had started, and on my laptop in front of me, using uh, my laptop in a streaming service, I was watching USC and Washington finish up. And uh, remarkable finish. Anna, you were watching it with the girls. And at the end of the game, Caleb Williams uh, sobbing in in his mother's arms. That scene at, at at that moment is being held up as look at the heart, right, of Caleb Williams. And simultaneously, some people saying, "Oh, look at him! He's running to his mother and crying in her arms." What did you make of it? All I know is it was still on the mind of our nine-year-old as we drove to school today. Like this is what she unsolicited decide to discuss during our ride she's like hey i really feel bad for that quarterback that was crying after the game i was like what you know like it i i'm not even sure that it registered with me that she was watching it that intently 
But um, she's like, gosh, she was really upset, huh? I was like, yeah, I guess. It sounds like a conversation you have to have with dad. I don't really understand the full complexity of it. I, um, I, but I don't know. What do you make of I, it? Well, I think there was a lot going on there but beyond the obvious. I think the obvious viewer who isn't watching a lot of college football is going to see Caleb Williams at the end of a hard-fought game. Things didn't go his way at the end. His team couldn't stop Washington. That was the biggest problem, not his fault. And he was, uh, they lost the game and he ran and, you know, he he's, hugs his mother and then he starts crying and then she does a mother, very motherly thing, motherly thing in that she hides his face from the cameras, mm-hmm. puts the paper in front of him. And, you know, what a great mom move there. But I think there was more going on there. I think you're watching Caleb Williams realize that it's not going to happen for him this year. The Heisman Trophy's not going to happen. He's, USC's not going to Vegas to play for the conference championship game to try to uh, avenge last year's uh, defeat to Utah. He's not going to make the playoff. And I think, you know, if if I were a betting person, I would now bet that USC quarterback Caleb Williams is not coming back to USC next year, right? There was a feel of finality to it to me that, you know, he was. it was more than just him disappointed leaving the field. It was running to his mother's arms. There was a uh, transition happening there. I think he's going to end up in the NFL draft if there were any questions. And I think he knows that his college career is ending, and it's not ending the way he wanted it to end. That's what I saw. But I got to wonder if people agree with, you know, Robert Griffin III. Because he thought that the moment reflected well on Caleb Williams, and it showed why any NFL team would be lucky to have him as their quarterback. This emotion shows how much this game means to him. Like, I think it's a really interesting topic because this idea of, like, a grown man crying that the game meant that much to him or whatever else was going on with him, and even his comments after the game I thought were interesting where he said he just wanted to go home and cuddle with his dog and watch some shows. Like, I thought that was interesting as well. Um, But, like, did his stock go up there? Like, if you are looking for a quarterback in the next draft, do you – does his stock go up or down after that scene? We have had this discussion on this show many, many times over the years. Adam Morrison laying on the court at the end of the NCAA tournament crying came to my mind immediately. Uh, But he already wasn't going to go. But but it was held up as a sign of weakness or he cares so much. Right. Look at him, he's crying. I, I didn't mind it. I don't think it hurts his stock because I don't think it affects him as a player. But I think it's a reminder like some, you know, of, of how fragile some of this is. You know, and, and I, li- I like Caleb Williams. That's, that's part of the issue is I come into this discussion having spoken to him a couple of times, had him on the show in July, came away from that interview really impressed with him. And, you know, but over the years we've talked about fans crying. We've talked about... Um, you know, Tom Hanks, you know. Say, Evelyn, can I ask you a question? You got a moment? Which team do you play for? Well, I'm a peach. Well, I was just wondering, because I couldn't figure out why you would throw home when we've got a two-run lead. You let the tying run get on second, and we lost the lead because of you. Now you start using your head. That's not love! That's three feet above your ass! 
Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris. Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No, no. And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. No crying. Is there crying in football? Well, apparently there is, because we just witnessed it. Does, no. does it change your mind that last season, uh, Max Duggan, after they lost their game, Big 12 title game, he had an emotional press conference where he was bawling at the press conference, and Caleb Williams quote tweeted it and put LOL, and then ended up deleting that tweet a little <laughs> bit later after <laughs> backlash, and now he's the one crying. Does that change your mind at all of this situation? No, I mean, I think it's Caleb Williams. <laughs> These guys are immature. I don't care if they're 21, 22. They're immature. Well, it's because they're 20 and 21 they're, they're that just, they're immature. Like, Caleb Williams also wrote F Utah on his fingernails, you know? and like <laughs> Same guy. Yeah. It's so, Same guy. But I, it didn't. If you're asking me, if I'm an NFL general manager. Yes. That's what I, I'm asking and, uh, you. Does this hurt Caleb Williams' draft stock in my eyes? No way. You, Steven? Come on. It doesn't hurt his stock. It doesn't help it either, though. Like, I, I don't really? know. Yeah, it, it doesn't affect me at all. Like, I, like, okay, you've got boys who play sports. What is your attitude? Uh, granted, they're young, but what is your attitude with them when it comes to crying at a game that is meaningful to them or at a practice? Because there are some dads, I will tell you, out there who are like, you will never cry. You will never shed a tear. If you cry, you cry in the solitary confines of your room and you let no one see you cry. Um, I don't, I would prefer them not to cry in front of everybody, uh, but I know that it's going to happen. Like, I've cried after losing games and stuff. So, like, yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. But I, I prefer not to, especially like in, in the midst of battle. Steven yeah. and I played air hockey one time at Dave and Buster's. <laughs> blubbering mess at the end of this. I was down 5-0. I didn't even finish. Here's a, here's a fan who was being interviewed after the U.S. men's national team lost in soccer. It's the World Cup. Man, we, like, it's the World Cup, bro. We had a chance. We had a, we had a, we had a chance. The second year we lost to Ghana. The second year. Why do we always give up the goal in the last minute? If you don't watch soccer, this is what it means to us. This is what it means to us. We should have won this game. <laughs> do you want that guy as a fan of your team? I don't know. Somebody's got to <laughs> check on that guy. I I don't think it hurts him. I, I don't and I don't know why people would bring it up saying, you know, more or less because there but there is. There's a contingent of people out there today. They're saying this is pathetic or I mean the really cynical ones are like, well, that he's crying cuz he just like lost like a million dollars. But I, I don't think he uh, he maybe lost some NIL money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it hurts him at all in the draft. But do, do you think there's still you know football guys out there that'll say he's soft for showing that type of emotion on the field? Because I mean that, like Anna said, like that's a thing, right? Like being a football guy, you can't show that type of emotion, and you're not supposed to cry on the field. Like is that is that a problem? No, I I want players who who care. I don't mind a player who's got a tear in his eye. I I think I watched the uh, Super Bowl and. The Eagles coach, Nick Sirianni, had tears running down his face in the pregame as the national anthem was playing. Did that make him soft as a coach? No, I think it makes him human. 
I think... We, we, we want these people to not be human? Is that what we're saying? No, I don't think that's it. But I think the, the, the delineation here is the tear running down the face, maybe some wetness on the cheeks as you're leaving the field. But a sobbing. But, like, what we're seeing here is, like, a, a grown man sobbing. Is it in, in his, his mother's it, arms? It is in his mother's arms. And he and th- just that lost. Is in fact his mother? He, he lost ran to him. his mom after they lost, okay. and he crawled into a ball in her lap, and she rocked him like a baby till he started <laughs> So, like, I don't think you can, it's not comparing apples and then to apples. And she covered his face because he was sucking his thumb. So that people can't make memes out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the difference here. It's like, I don't think, I think we're evolved enough as a society to be like, hey, it's okay for grown men to cry and be emotional. Should but he have like, not gone to his mother? I don't think he intended to cry. He went to go see his mom. He gave her a hug. <laughs> Maybe she said something. Maybe? Maybe she said, pumpkin, this is like when you were in the third grade and you brought home a B. And he started crying. Going, I, mean, I should have had an A. Preferably, it would be better if he did it at home, right? Like, just go home and cry. What do you think? What's your theory on what she said to him? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You're so much better. I, I lost yeah. respect for you, son. Yeah, exactly. It's something just really. You're unranked really, now? What are we doing? You know what? If I'm the Cardinals, I wouldn't touch you. You know? <laughs> Maybe. I don't but know. But no, see, Stephen, that's the thing is, like, I don't mind people being passionate about the game and crying. Like, John, you said that after the Washington-Oregon game, there were players. Both teams cried. Both sides both that were crying. Cried. Out of yeah. jubilation and out of, you know. Penix cried after sadness. the game. Michael Penix cried. The okay. Washington quarterback cried during the post-game interview with ESPN or ABC, whoever had the broadcast that day. Really? Uh, Fox had it, didn't okay. they? Somebody had it. But, it. but he cried. He had to wipe tears away with his uniform jersey. Yeah. And then... Uh, Grub, the uh, the offensive coordinator, yeah, was in the tunnel, uh-huh. and he told reporters after the game he had to stop in the tunnel, because yeah. he said he started crying okay. and he didn't want anybody to see him, and he was crying in the in the tunnel as he walked to, out of the stadium. Yeah, and then I was down on the field. I saw several Oregon players crying. Mm-hmm. I saw one of you know it wasn't like blubbering, climb into your mother's arms tears. It was tears running down their cheeks. And then there was one organ player who was distraught, who was outside the locker room, and he was kind of kneeled down. He had his head down, and I could tell he was crying. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of sad to see that. But also, it's a football game. It's This is not, you know, Ukraine and Russia. This is not the uh, uh, Israel and Palestine. This is, you know, this is not the economy. It's a football game. Yeah. It's human emotion, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the old school way of thinking is you never let them see you cry. Do not show your emotion. Save that, you know, for the privacy of your home or whatever or around your close friends and family. So I do think we've made strides, like, as a country to accept, like, the real emotions that grown men show, display, and feel. Like, there's a certain health, I think, to that. Um, But maybe there is maybe this next step of just, like the Heisman Trophy winner crying in his mom's arms, we're not yet ready to be like really comfortable with that. There's about, just something about the image that we're all go- scratch your head going, oh, okay. What about when Michael Jordan was crying at the uh, Hall of Fame induction and then everybody took it and made a meme out of it and yeah, you know, yeah, that's be- Jordan crying. Jordan's become a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of that. Um, all right, leave it here. Much more ahead. <laughs>
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I saw this video clip uh, where Denzel Washington was talking about making movies. And uh, he was sitting around a round table with Mel Gibson and some other actors were there. Um, Oliver Stone was their director. And they were talking about their jobs. And Denzel Washington said, this isn't hard work. We're acting. And he talked about early in his earlier in his life that he worked as a um, he worked for the uh, United Postal Service mm-hmm. and he worked as a garbage man. And he said, as a garbage man, he said, it's an eight hour. They give you eight hours of work, but if you can finish it in four hours, you get to go home. Hmm. He said, in the postal service, they give you four hours of work, <laughs> and you have to turn it into eight hours. Okay, and so. He, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but he, there was interesting and there was mixed reaction around the table with the other actors and directors as to whether or not making movies is actually qualifies as hard work. It made me, it got me thinking about, about, um, sports and whether or not, cause we always hear athletes talk about how tired they are. We'd hear them talking about how hard they're working, all this stuff. Is it actually hard work? Cause Denzel Washington started comparing it to people uh, who are coming home from wars, who have been shot, who have lost limbs. And he was like, let's not get carried away. We make movies we about this stuff. We aren't actually involved. Now, Oliver Stone served in Vietnam, so he might have a different perspective. But it was interesting just to see the faces of the actors yeah. and the way they reacted when he said it wasn't hard work. They all, you could tell there was not agreement at the table and nobody was willing to speak up about it. Do you think, it, do you think first of all, do you think acting is hard work? Uh, you've done it. You've done it. Anna, you've been on a couple of shows. You've been on Netflix, American Vandal, Girl in the Woods. People can watch that on FX and whatever <laughs> station that's on now. But you've been on set. Yeah. Do you think actors, do you think it's hard work? Yeah, I think it's hard work, but I think it's fun work. It's creative work, you know, and it's like, I think any job can be argued to be like a a hard job, just about. Um, But, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective. I mean, when you start comparing an acting career or even playing a professional sport to, you know, other jobs that maybe carry a lot more symbolic meaning, you know, a soldier going into war, a Marine being the first one to go um, into the battlefield, um, you know, the potential of death uh, as a sacrifice for your country, um, first responders of just about any kind. I mean, it just depends on your definition of hard. Right? I I also watch this interview. I do this when I'm traveling. I'm watching interviews and reading. And so I watch this interview with uh, one of the guy who shot Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And it was the the Navy SEAL who actually did actually pulled the trigger, the kill shot, shot yeah. him three times. And and he said prior to the mission, they were told there's a fair chance you're not coming home. Yeah. That. It wasn't a suicide mission, but it was dangerous and had a big potential to go sideways. And they did not know when they got into that compound 
You know, they did not know, even though analysts were telling them bin Laden's there and it's a trove of information, they did not know. And he said the reason he shot him three times at point blank range was he said um, he did not know if he had a suicide vest on. Mm -hmm. And he said it's, you know, just takes very little pressure from somebody to push a button. And, And then he said after it was over, the other seal came up to him and he turned and said, what do we do now? And the guy said, we do what we always do. We get the computers. And he said, oh, yeah. And he snapped right back into it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm thinking about that experience and the stress of that. Yeah. Comparing it to, like, an actor trying to do a stunt yeah. or remembering lines. And so I get what Denzel Washington's saying. Yeah. And then I'll extend it even to sports. Like, I've talked to numerous athletes who will complain. And they'll say, I'm tired. I'm not at 100%. Yeah. I'm injured. This is a hard game. This is a hard thing. Oh, I've worked so hard. Maybe why Caleb Williams was crying in his mother's arms. Like the sacrifice and the hours and the energy and the mental bandwidth put into this game. But I think everybody loses perspective, right? Yeah, because really, if you're talking about acting or playing sports at a, you know, collegiate or professional level, really when you step back and look at it, it is a privilege like it is a privilege to be able to play on that platform and have access to the resources that you receive to make you better every day as an athlete or as an actor or whatever that industry may be so if you look at it from the standpoint of I'm working so hard you know appreciate me for the sacrifices I make I don't know if your day-to-day is super happy. Like, if all of us sat back and we looked at what we do for a job, like, I I consider it a privilege that we get to sit here and, you know, talk about stuff. Like, sports, what do I know about sports? I consider it a privilege to sit here with you and talk about this and have people who even, like, half want to listen to what we have to say. That's a privilege. I never confuse it, though, for that other stuff. Like, it's it's not holding a jackhammer. Like, right. I, but full disclosure, like, Saturday night, yeah. I cover, okay, so I fly to Boulder, I go to the stadium, I uh, spend, you know, six, seven hours at the stadium, I leave the stadium, I drive back to Denver, I don't sleep Saturday night, I write all night, and I get on a plane at 8 o'clock in the morning out of Denver, I never went to bed after Saturday night's football game, and I'm in the security line in TSA, and there's Oregon State fans who are in the security line, they're like, hey, I read you, and I said, well, I just sent something to you. Check your email. <laughs> and um, I told the guy, I said, I never went to bed. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Uh-huh. That's the job some right. days. That's the job. Like, I get back from the stadium. It's 1.30 in the morning. I need to write. And I'm going to be up all night doing it. And so, but I don't mistake it with or confuse it with, like, somebody who's holding a jackhammer or a first responder or somebody in our military who's risking their life and crawling on their stomach through the desert. You know, I, you know, like, yeah. I don't, I don't confuse those two things. Well, but I mean, which is not to say that what you do is not hard, because I think most people have no realization that you literally are pulling an all-nighter to post photo galleries and write at least, you know, two columns, if not more. Like, they don't understand what it takes to do that. And it, it would be unfair to you to say that's easy. It's certainly not easy. It is hard. But... 
you know, what's harder? You know, there's a lot of things that you can compare it to, and it all depends on the perspective that you have. Like, you know who has a hard job? You know who gets, like, a full bottle of, like, Crown Royal at, at Christmas time at our kids' school? The freaking janitor, man. The janitor who has to clean up, like, vomit and um, other bodily excrements um, in the classrooms because that one guy is walking around the whole school keeping that school clean, and I am so grateful to him for it. And, like, no one's going to think about him throughout the year and, and appreciate what he and does. He's got a hard job, too. He's got a heck of a hard job. Yeah. All right. I, uh, I just sent you a video. Me? Kaylin DeBoer, you and Stephen both. Okay. Kalen DeBoer on the field after the 52-42 Washington win over USC. And, of course, Caleb Williams is being criticized for crying. Oh, yeah. And here's a Washington player um, in the arms of uh, <laughs> of Kalen DeBoer yeah. having himself a good cry. Okay. So wh- are both – which one's right, which one's wrong? What were we saying? Can you not cry after a loss, but you can cry after a win? <laughs> That's what, we can't. We can't say any of them is wrong. It's all okay to These cry. These are all just people that care about things. It's okay to cry. It's all right to cry. It's all right to cry. Um, <laughs> Rosie Greer sang yes. that song. Big guy. All right, coming up to five at five. Anna's gonna give us the five most important stories. There'll be no crying in the five at five. <laughs> but Caleb Williams. He's crying and getting crap for it. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. That Washington player who was crying, the backstory on it, his father had passed away recently. ZTF, or uh, as it's pronounced, Zion Tupuolefetui. How close did I get there? Pretty close. I'm going off the uh, phonetic guide. Thank you, Washington, for that. Um, so, you know, emotional moment for him. And I think people are celebrating it, saying that's a nice moment. And look at Kalen DeBoer, the coach, putting his arms around his guy. And then Caleb Williams. But if you Google Washington, USC, crying, you get nothing about Zion. It's all Caleb Williams. Mm-hmm. The better story is the Washington kid being consoled by his fa- his uh, father, his father figure now, his coach. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Just saying, it's a be- it's a way better story. It is. Way more redeeming. Scott in Portland has some thoughts on Caleb Williams crying, and then we're getting to the 5 at 5. Scott, go ahead. Hey, John. Yeah, I mean, really what it comes down to, man, at the end of the day is context, right? I was going to say, I didn't know if you had heard on that, that Washington kid, but pretty pretty uh, gut-wrenching situation. You know, he lost his father during the, the Stanford game last week. I'm a huge Duff fan, and watching that was pretty was pretty wild, but there's definitely as it relates to, like, a Caleb Williams situation where the dude, let's face it, man, men are, men are feminized in this in this society that we live in, ultimately, right? So, uh, you look at a guy like Caleb Williams, and, and does that, you know, affect his draft, his draft stock? I mean, as a leader? Like, I don't know, man. I, I, I would think so. There's definitely a time and place for it. 
Um, you look at a guy like Bo Nix, uh, who's just tried and true, stays the middle ground the whole way, you know, and, and, and just leads his team, uh, you know, the same way every every weekend. I would I would definitely show concerns, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I think I think Caleb Williams definitely got some, some growing up to do. Uh, Bo Nix, you know, far and beyond uh, the leader that, that Caleb Williams is, and at least in, my, in what I'm seeing week after week. So. Yeah, I, I think it's hard. I, I think it's. I think we all need to spend more time with him. I think Bo Nix is more polished than Caleb Williams. He's also a lot older than Caleb Williams. And you know, Bo Nix is like a thirty-year-old guy. You know, he, he really is. You know, he's married. I'm sure he's got you know dogs. He's playing pickleball with his wife on the weekends. Caleb Williams is still like a twenty, just barely twenty-one-year-old. And I remember looking up their ages on Pac-12 Media Day because. Bo Nix was just way more polished than anybody else, and I thought it was really interesting to kind of see the differences in age. The guy that surprised me was Shador Sanders was older than I thought he was after mm-hmm. meeting him. I thought, oh, he's nineteen twenty. No, he's older. And so um, that one surprised me. All right, we're going to do the five at five. Uh, Anna's got the five biggest stories as she sees them, guaranteed. What does she mean by that? Well, here we go. The five at five. Guaranteed, she says. Well, Aaron Rodgers must be... Oh, man, I gotta wait for that thing. Aaron Rodgers must be doing something right in his recovery from his Achilles tendon injury because he's got uh, Jets fans all excited. He was in the building before kickoff, and he's no longer even cruising around on a cart, but he's walking around on foot, throwing a football around. He's way ahead of schedule, and his recovery from injuries so are we going to see him back sooner than later i think he misses it i saw the video of it it's not like he's scrambling around but he's still got the arm i mean that doesn't surprise me that you know he's out there throwing the ball 60 yards down the field but you know he was in nondescript clothing he wasn't like wearing his jersey or anything and he's Mm -hmm. just he's just around it a little bit yeah i think he probably misses it good for him i was gonna say if the jets make the playoffs is Aaron Rodgers playing? <laughs> just, I hate that thing. <laughs> if the Jets make the playoffs, why would they need him? Like you know, he's better than Zach Wilson. Yeah, okay, he's better than Zach Wilson, but I I don't know. I I have mixed feelings about it because if Zach Williams takes him to the playoffs, isn't this like one of these communities that says, "Hey, we need to redraft the little league team because you know I know the All Star team." Made it, uh, you know, to the to the regional finals and won it. But they're now you're going to Williamsport now. We need all the best players on the team. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know if he's good. I don't know if it's the best thing for him though to be back. Like you don't want him rushing this. Mm-hmm. If you're the Jets, this is a longer play than this season. Have, everybody done? done? Yeah. Everybody's I done think talking. So. I think okay. So. Number, Number two. <laughs> Go. Well, they did it anyway. The Portland Timbers have named Phil Neville as head coach. Neville. Yeah, this is the guy that uh, comes into the position uh, with a fair amount of controversy over comments that he's made in the past, even if he was kidding, that really sounded like he was sexist. Uh, the Timbers club is like the, the fan club is coming out against the decision. Um, they say they are deeply 
disappointed that the club has reportedly settled on this finalist that has a history of sexist public statements that run counter to our ethos as a club, city, and supporters group. That is from the Timbers Army Steering Committee. This is a misfire by the Timbers. I'm not saying Neville should be canceled. I don't think he should be canceled. I think you can say something sexist. I think you can tweet something sexist. And, you know, then you got to kind of have to live with it. But for the Timbers to hire this guy in the wake of what happened with the Thorns and after a promise to do better, it, it just kind of smacks the fan base, particularly women in the fan base, right in the kisser. I mean, I just think it's it's tone deaf. And I think this one comes back to bite them in a big way. I think they're going to be... Diehard soccer fans who are just turned off by this and go go do other things. I think it hurts. Now I'm gun shy. Number three. I'm just going to sit here and wait. The Cubs will hire former Brewers manager Craig Council as their next manager. Uh, I, I guess it was just big news in the Major League Baseball world because David Ross was signed through 2025 as the Cubs manager. Um, you know, the chairman had even said Ross was the team's guy after the season ended in dramatic fashion with the Cubs just missing the playoffs, but I guess they've had a change of heart, and they've pulled in uh, Craig Council, who uh, I guess the Cubs and the Brewers have a rivalry. And, yes. and yeah, this is the other thing. Like, Council's getting... You know, it is a five-year deal worth $40 million. It is a record for a manager. And, um, you know, he was he was a big leader with the Players Association during his career as a player. And and uh, he is uh, a guy that was basically lured away by the money to Chicago. And this comes after, you mentioned it, Ross got a vote of confidence from his owner mm-hmm. who said, this is our guy. And then they went and negotiated behind his back. So... Cubs are trying to win. Council won three titles in the National League Central. And, uh, you know, as a guy who grew up 15 minutes from the Brewers' ballpark, who has now uh, turned his back on the Brewers. That'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You think it was a rivalry before. It's going to get real now. Number four. It's a really pregnant pause waiting for I you. I was to just waiting to see if you thing. or Steven had a follow up comment. No, we're just waiting for you to play the sound f- effect thing. Okay, fine. Um, U.S. World National <laughs> Team legends Allie Krieger and Megan Rapino will play for the championship in the final game of both of their careers. Get that. That is uh, coming up Saturday, November 11th. Their careers will both end after the games. One of them will walk away with the title. They're calling it a storybook ending. Um, did you know, so I didn't know this, Rapino spent her entire career with the Reign. Um, but the Reign have never won a, a national title. You know what they should title it? You said, you know, it's a storybook thing. Yeah, yeah. Loser leaves town. <laughs> I think that what they should do is whoever wins the game comes back next season. Oh. The loser has to retire. Yeah. Come on, you think about how many people would tune in to see that. Wait, whoever loses... Loser leaves town. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The loser has to retire. Yeah. The winner comes back. I see. 
Oh. I think that would be great. All right. Are we on the last one? I think so. Number five. Uh, Tiger Woods and Roy McIlroy uh, will have a shot clock in their simulator golf league. Have you heard about this thing? Yeah, it's cool. Um, so this is like uh, top golf on steroids, sort of, right? Um, the first match will be on ESPN January 9th. Every week, six PGA Tour players will face off in front of a live audience in a custom-built arena in Florida. They'll tee off on real grass tee boxes, and this whole thing is just so strange. To it me. is weird. I think it'll bring in some younger viewers. I'm, I'll check it out. I don't think it's going to pacify or I- intrigue the diehard golf fan, though. Hmm. All right. Monday Night Football is coming up. That's the sixth thing that we had to talk about. We're back tomorrow with another great show. Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning, both on the show this week.